This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I was always smiling on a basketball court because I knew exactly what I was doing for a living was the greatest thing I could ever do for a living. My guest today played 11 years in the NBA. Too bad he only had 11 hairstyles when he played in the NBA. (laughs) He was a star at Kansas for the Jayhawks. He is... uh, one of my best friends. He's a great guy, man. That is the one and only Scott Pollard. Do you know that you are right now on, if you don't like that, with Grant Napier? <laughs> I know now. That was a heck of an introduction. And, and uh, yeah, we go back a ways, buddy. We do. We got lots of memories together. We've been through divorces together. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of money together. <laughs> but here's the bottom line. We are both the happiest we've ever been in our lives right now. That is true. So, that is true. Right? You, you learn a lot about yourself and relationships, and, and I don't mean to dog anybody in our past, but I just want to, to yeah, agree with you that w- you learn what's more important in life, and, and we both found the person that uh, makes us better men. Let me ask you something. Why do you have so many tattoos? <laughs> Part, well, they started, I got the first one when I was 23, uh, after my rookie year, and I had always wanted to get a tattoo to honor my dad because my dad died when I was 16. He never really got to see me play any serious basketball. I was a sophomore in high school, and that was the first year I was on varsity. And so he never really got to see me play uh, any any good basketball or any the best part of my career. Uh, and so I always wanted to honor him because he's in the state of Utah Hall of Fame, and, and I always looked up to my father, and I've always missed him my whole life. Uh, and so I got this dumb tribal tattoo on the top of my upper back with the number 31, which was his number. And that's why I wore 31 my whole career, except for a couple places. Uh, we can get into that later, but, uh, I got a dumb tribal tattoo above my, in my, in between my shoulder blades with the number 31 circled by a chain. And at the time I thought that's cool, man. I want that for the rest of my life at 23. Even I thought I was knew what I wanted for the rest of my life. And I was wrong. <laughs> um, after that, it just got to be uh, somewhat of an addiction. I enjoyed it. I liked the way they look. Uh, I became very good friends with my tattoo artist in, in Lawrence, Kansas. And so he's done most of them. Uh, I had Wild Bill, actually, uh, is based in Sacramento. That was my first tattoo. Uh, it was actually his apprentice that did it. But um, I got my belly done. Uh, then I got, uh, I was in Thailand one time. I got my left thigh. I got a Thai, uh, actually it's an old Cambodian, uh, sing or a lion, um, on my left thigh. And, 
Um, but but most of my tattoos were done by my friend Steve in, in Lawrence, Kansas. And, uh, you know, there was times where I was just like, hey, man, do this. And he'd draw something up real quick on yeah. a piece of paper, and, and that's where it went. Now I'm, like, telling my kids, don't do it. I'm Is just, that right? You don't want your kids to have well, tattoos? Because now I'm covered, and, and to get them removed – you couldn't get yours removed. It would, take it would be years. well. You couldn't. I, your I, body. You I couldn't. Wouldn't, I wouldn't make it. Your, your <laughs> tattoo, "Son of Poison." Yeah. In memory of your dad, you lost your dad at an early age in your life. Mm-hmm. The impact that your father had on you, because you came from a large family, mm-hmm. brothers that are, believe it or not, folks uh, as big, if not bigger, than Scott. Three of them are. Your dad was a heck of a basketball player. The impact that he had on you was what? Uh. Well. It's hard for me to express it in different terms other than anger really fueled me on the basketball court. Uh, the the uh, And again, the son of Poison, my dad's nickname was Poison right. because he was so good. It was Poison Pearl Pollard. And so my son of Poison, after I covered up my upper back tattoo with the number 31, then I decided that was going to be the son of Poison was going to be my, my tattoo for my father. And so that one I haven't covered up. That one's still there. And uh, you know, at first it was a tramp stamp, and <laughs> and then I got it surrounded with other ink, so then it looked less like a tramp stamp. So, anyway, um, but when he died, I became very angry, and I quit basketball uh, for two whole weeks, and then I decided I was going to go crazy and probably go back to doing some bad stuff that I had been doing earlier. I had been arrested for stealing and grand theft and credit card fraud, and it was luckily it's all on my juvenile record. So, <laughs> and I, and I didn't I, I got caught and did community service, and it made me realize that was dumb and me and my friends were like this is never gonna happen again and it didn't none of us ever got in trouble again like that and so then my dad died and I was like well screw this and then I thought oh man I'm gonna go back to doing dumb stuff so the anger inside of me that that uh, that fomented from losing my father at that age drove me to be pretty much insane about basketball and I kept the the discipline that he gave me which was make sure that you don't play year-round because you ruin your body and your passion for this game. So I had to force myself in the off seasons to take a month off of basketball so that my drive and my hunger and also the rest, uh, physical rest, would drive me to greater heights. And then when I got back into it, I would play even harder. And the my, my passion all stemmed from anger. And, and it's hard for I've I've expressed that to a few close friends of mine in the past and they don't understand it and it's hard for me to say why that worked for me but I, I the best I can do is you know if you ever watched any of those Marvel movies and the Hulk's in there and they're like oh like you better suit up you know better get angry and he goes you know that's the thing, secret about me I'm always angry and that's the best way I can describe it because that's why I never got in fights ever I don't fight I hate violence because I'm worried that I'll snap and, and if I snap, bad things are going to happen to the other person. I'm a giant. I'm strong. And so I never have confronted anybody or been in fights where I'm like the antagonist. I've been in arguments, and I've had people hit me. Um, but I'm, I've always got that right underneath my skin. And I, I hide it with smiles. I don't think anybody enjoyed playing basketball more than I did. I was always smiling on a basketball court because I knew exactly what I was doing for a living was the greatest thing I could ever do for a living. And I enjoyed every single second of it. And, but, but underneath that, but you would step onto the court when you weren't supposed to. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> I was just trying to get a better view. <laughs> so one step, real, how much did one step onto the court cost you in uh, that Orlando game? Oh, it was a $5,000 fine, which uh, in the grand scheme of things wasn't that expensive. But one game's pay. <laughs> now, that was expensive. That was $55,000. And the amount of money you spent in Miami when you weren't playing, <laughs> add that onto it. So yeah. that was an expensive step onto yeah. the floor for an yeah. automatic ejection. Yeah. You and uh, Vladi got suspended, right? Right. Bobby Jackson threw a ball at Tracy McGrady on the other end of the court and we we were on the bench resting because right. we were winning by a lot and we we both stepped on the court to get a better view and then it came down to our end and actually what happened is Hito Turkoglu ran over to the melee and Vlade ran down the baseline to grab him and bring him back and Hito didn't get suspended or anything like that and I think it was because he was actually in the game but he ran down to get a part of it and Vlade came and grabbed him and brought him back and so even though he was trying to help break up the fight Vlade was suspended as well now his game pay per game pay was a lot higher than mine. He made a lot more money. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. So he actually spent a whole lot more. And then he admitted to me that Anna, his wife, the lovely Mrs. Divock went shopping to kind of, I, I don't know how that makes sense, but I, I don't I, either, a but... lot of my, my teammates wives, when they got suspended or fined, they would go shopping because it was like, well, you just spent all that money, so I'm going to go spend some money. Wow. I never understood You better that. not go there. And I, I don't did... mean to disparage Mrs. Divock. I no. love her very no, much. No, we love Mrs. Uh, Divock. And, and so, yeah, both of us were sitting in Miami the next night, and you can't even go to the arena, as you well know, because we were suspended. So we just had to go to a restaurant and watch the game on TV, and they're like, shouldn't you guys be there? And we're like, yeah, we got suspended. And so that was a very expensive – I had one Corona that night, and it was a very expensive Corona. <laughs> you, you really launched your basketball career – in Sacramento in the 50-game strike-shortener lockout season, and you went on, and every team you played for was a championship-caliber team. You were at the, you made it to the NBA Finals when LeBron James went for the first time. You were part of the Boston Celtics team that won a championship. Of course, Sacramento, 60-plus wins. We know about the Western Conference Finals. Very good in Indiana. If I talk about those four teams... And not talk about players. Was there a common denominator for those franchises' success during that time? Meaning, was it a coach? Was it the ownership? Was there a common denominator? Yeah, me. Because, <laughs> because, because the only one that's won a championship since I was on the team was Cleveland. <laughs> hey, and everyone beautiful. else has not played well since then. How about that? Uh, no, you were no, underpaid then. Yeah, I, I'm the glue. In fact, when I left Boston, and, and I, I say that in jest, everyone, but um, it, it, when I left Boston, I was actually joking with Danny Ainge. I said, hey, you know, I lived on the 17th floor this year. This was Boston Celtics' 17th banner. Uh, I wore number 66 this year. We won 66 games. Wow, there you go. I said, Danny, you may want to have me back. I'll move to the 18th floor. And he laughed and he said no. <laughs> but um, have they won a championship since? No, they haven't. No. And they, that team was basically the same, but not me on that. I mean, they didn't like, it wasn't like they shipped KG off. But um, in all seriousness, the common denominator is when a team and it's trite, and everybody should know this. It's kind of common sense if you're a team player. Uh, but when everybody puts their egos aside and decides that winning is more important than my stats, if I'm worried about how many minutes a game I'm playing because I'm going to get a bonus if I average 17 minutes a game or I'm going to get a bonus if I make 20 minutes a game, I had bonuses in my shoe contract. If, if, you know, if I won finals MVP, I would have won like a million dollars from Nike. 
now I didn't make finals MVP, but I'm just saying everybody has bonuses in their contract that not a lot of people know about. People don't really realize how many bonuses. Cleveland, for example, uh, there was a player on the team, I'm not going to name him, but he had a bonus in his contract because he had had an injury played career. And as soon as he played a certain number of games, he got $2 million of a bonus. And after he played that game that got him the bonus, he sat down wow. and stopped playing because he didn't. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, we're in the finals. So he started coming back in the playoffs and started saying, oh, I'm healthy. But that hurt us a lot because that's a player quitting. So in, in contrast, the common denominator is players that put themselves below the team. And, and, and nobody was more indicative of that than that Sacramento Kings 0-1-0-2 Sure, but does that start with ownership? Does it start with the general manager, the coach? Because I look at franchises like Miami, and even when you don't think they're going to be good, they're always good. Maybe not championship good, but they're always competitive. And even when they change players, Pat Riley says, it's this the way we're going to do it, and it seems to work, and they have a system. And I don't know if that starts with Mickey Arison. I look at Peter Holt with, I think it's Peter Holt with the Spurs. Yes, I know they had David Robinson. Then they got lucky with Tim Duncan. I know they have Pop. But they're competitive, and they were, what, for 20 straight years? Did they won something like 50-plus games every year? I'm not naive. I know you have to have good players to succeed in the NBA, but there's more to it than that, isn't it? Well, yeah, and I, I could say that, you know, despite my uh, jokes about Indiana not being great since, they, they're always competitive. Yes. And so I do believe that it is starts from the top down. And in my experience, the, all of the owners I played for, the, the, all the teams I was on, the owners let the basketball people do the basketball stuff. And they didn't micromanage. Now, the, oh, the most famous example of that, I think, is, Dal- is Dallas and Mark Cuban, who does tend to micromanage it seems but we don't know that on right. the outside looking in it seems that he's just a super fan and he's always there and he's present because he's mark cuban but all the teams i played on the maloofs let the basketball people do the basketball stuff here in indiana the simons they are i think maybe the best owners in the nba because in a small market it's really hard to compete they've always been somewhat profitable and they've always been competitive now do i think they need to take some risks and try to get themselves a number one pick as opposed to consistently getting middle first-round picks and trying to hang the hat of the franchise on a middle first-round pick, yeah, I do think they need to take some risk and try to get some better talent, but they're always competitive, and they try to get lucky with a guy like DeMontis Sabonis, which That's so right. far they have, and if he comes back from injury and he's great, he's going to be the best player on this team. No question. Because Oladipo, I don't think, is ever going to be good again. I, I'm sorry, I don't think his body is ever going to be what it was before this injury. So the, the common denominator to me, it does start at the top. It starts with owners that just go, hey, here's what you need to be successful. Go be successful. And then you have to have basketball people that are allowed in, in that transfer of power and the pressure. Go. Go do it. And then if they have that ability and they have the brain power, uh, which most of them do, you don't get hired as a, as a basketball GM unless you know a little bit about basketball and have a history there. And so... The, the, the franchises that struggle are the ones that keep firing people. They keep firing head coaches. There's no consistency. Um, and they, the, the owners micromanage. Uh, they get in the way or they don't spend the money. Or, you know, uh, look, like look at the Clippers. They never spent money before Ballmer took over. They were always just trying to get by. And the value of the franchise went up. But they were never competitive because he was just always like, oh, somebody got good and he'd let them go because they didn't want to spend the money. And so they were always a joke of uh, a uh, franchise until – Ballmer took over and was like, here, spend some money and let's win some games. Uh, and it doesn't always work, but the teams that are competitive that you mentioned, the Spurs, the Heat, and I think the Indiana Pacers can be lumped in that category of a small market team that, 
that shouldn't be as good as they are consistently because they don't spend a lot of money. They can't spend a lot of money because they will always lose money because they don't have those giant TV contracts and all the other contracts that are involved in those big cities that make them profitable regardless of their record. Uh, so it's, it's a tough thing to do, and you have to get lucky with a Tim Duncan uh, on occasion in a, in a small market or a Giannis Antetokounmpo. If, I'm sorry for butchering his name. I'm, I'm not <laughs> Just call him the Greek freak. Yeah, the Greek freak. <clears throat> um, and so, uh, you know, if, if he stays there, then Milwaukee's got a chance to be good because he is sure, very, course. very good. Right. I'm not saying and he's, he's not even in, famer, he's not he's, in his prime yet. He's still, yeah. he's still, he's still very young by basketball standards. I mean, Michael Jordan didn't win his first championship, I believe until he was 28. Yeah. Well, and we forget that Tim Duncan went to college for four years. That's correct. And so, which is, a, you know, I yeah, mean, that's a I huge difference. So, yes. you know, it's, right. it's a thing that some players are good after one or two years of college. Some players are incredibly gifted like LeBron or Kobe sure. that never went to college. They didn't need to, but there's most of us need the time to become men. And I don't, I'm not saying the Greek freak doesn't need that time because he's already there. Like he's a man, but to your point, he's got some improving to do because his maturity level will, will keep going. And 27, 28, in my opinion is when guys are in their prime. That's when I was. And then it just, you know, I went downhill pretty fast after that. Sure. Well, <laughs> but you know, broken back, will do that. <laughs> I say, Kevin Garnett, who you played with in Boston, won a championship. I watch him from afar. I've never talked to Kevin Garnett. But as a basketball announcer, as a fan, I've always admired how he plays the game because it seems to me when I watch him, and I know it's a cliche, but he plays every down and plays every game as if it's going to be the last game he'll play. One of my favorite teammates, and, and I, I don't think I'd be hurting his feelings by saying we're not our favorite each other's person. Mm -hmm. I don't have his number and call him up and we're like, hey, let's go get some coffee, Kev. Um, but that doesn't matter when you're on a team. What matters when you're on a team is are you going to work? Are you going to contribute to this team, whether it's mentally – maturity, veterans leading from the bench, leading from the locker room, uh, even though they're not playing a whole lot on the floor, which was what my role was at the end of my career. Uh, or are you the, are you the one of the best, if not the best player on the team and you're giving it your best every single day. And that's what Kevin did. And that's why we won in Boston. Uh, I think Paul took us home. Paul Pierce. His, his, yeah. Paul Pierce took us home in the finals because he was just amazing in the NBA finals. But throughout the season, you need consistent leadership. And Kevin brought it every single day. And it's, again, another cliche, first guy in, last guy to leave. That guy worked. He was in there all the time. Now, Paul was always the first one in and always the last one to lead, but, uh, leave. But Paul wasn't vocal. Paul's not a vocal guy. He's not going to get in people's faces. On occasion, he will. But he just assumes people should know things. And so he's not really a screamer. Kevin would call people out and hold them accountable. And that is what I loved about being a teammate of Kevin Garnett's because he's, he's not just barking. I had teammates that barked. But they were showing up late. They were out of shape. They didn't play their best every night because they got injured because they were out of shape. And I've, I've had very so low tolerance for that type of leader because that's no type of leader at all. And so I want, I want to be with guys that, you know, in the NBA parlance that are dogs. And that's what we called each other. You, you're a dog because that means you will fight. And I want to be on a team, in a locker room, in a foxhole, all those cliches with a dog. Because that's who's going to make me better and hold me accountable so I can hold them accountable too. And there's no feelings there. There's just winning. And that's all that matters. And that was our common denominator on all of those successful teams, including the Pacers. Yep. How the hell did you guys lose Game 7 at home 
when you were with the Kings. Does that still does does that eat at you all the time? <laughs> I'm going to give you the Uncle Rico response. If Coach would have played me in the fourth quarter, <laughs> we totally would have taken State <laughs> because I was actually having a very good game. And Rick decided to go back with Vlade and Chris in the fourth quarter when the pressure was on the line, and it went overtime, right? Yes. Yeah. And so I didn't see the court late game, and I pretty sure I had a double-double going into the fourth quarter. I was playing pretty well against, uh, yes, you, you were. know, that guy, what's his name, Shaq. <laughs> the, re- the reason why your career was cut short the because you were damaged goods. Fall, my back broke. Right. <laughs> um, that was true, Honor. You took a charge on him, and you were never the same, correct? Well, it wasn't one. He, okay. he knocked me out that one time with a charge yep. uh, where I, I took the charge, and they called it on me. But that was that was in a it wasn't intentional, and nothing he ever did was intentional against me. I hope it was because he had a respect, but I don't know. I just really liked the guy, and I hope he liked me too. But, um, no, it, it, they don't really know why it, it fractured. It was a stress fracture in my sacrum, which is sure. right in between your pelvis, if anybody's listening to that. And uh, there was no guarantee that I was ever going to be able to play basketball again because I had three different uh, doctors look at it and three different prognoses. One said it was a tumor. I was like, where's the tumor? There's no tumor. I see a crack on the MRI. Uh, one said I was going to have to have career-ending surgery to remove my pelvis and Jesus. put a screw in there. No way. Because it would never heal. That that place would, because there's no blood flow hardly, so that crack would never have healed in my sacrum. And the Sacramento doctors were like, maybe just take four months off and let's see if it heals. So that's what I did. Yeah. I, I, I swam. I ran in a water treadmill. I did not do any running on pavement or concrete or on a court for almost four months. And came back, and it was different. It was never the same, but I was able to play six more years in the league or five more years in the league. All right, so circle back to that series against the Lakers. Does it eat at you constantly, or have you let it go? Oh, when it's brought up. I mean, I don't just randomly just think about it. Um, Sometimes I do, but most of the time it's brought up on a podcast or an interview or somebody tweets at me or, or, you know, mentions it, one of my friends or whatever. Uh, so when it does get brought up, it absolutely eats at me because there were so many times in that series we had a chance to close them out. But regardless of what you say about game four, you know, Samaki hitting that right. half-court buzzer beater that shouldn't have counted. It wasn't right. a buzzer beater at halftime, which would have made Hori's shot in- insignificant. That's correct. But there's a lot of things in between there that we could have done better to make Hori's shot insignificant. But game six kills you, doesn't game it? Game six kills you. Right. But game, game five. But – my point is, no matter what, we did our job the whole season to earn best record in the league, to have home court advantage throughout the playoffs. So we had game seven at home. That is what you play for. You missed 14 that free throws. And, in, and you go into game seven and basically you crap the bed. Yeah. You can't make a shot. That's why the Lakers were the champions, because they closed it out on our court. They played championship-level basketball, and we crapped the bed. We couldn't make a shot. We weren't discombobulated. And that is why they won. It wasn't because they were better than us. It was because they were mentally tougher than us. And we're going into game seven reeling from game six and thinking about, well, we're against the refs too, or whatever it was. I wasn't thinking that way. I was thinking, hey, shit, we got game seven. Let's do this. Let's go. It's a one-game series. All those cliches. This is what we play for. The pressure's on. We're at home. We have the best fans in the world cheering us on, and I have our backs. And we go in there and crap the bed at home in front of our own fans. And that's the part that hurts. None of the other stuff really bothers me or grates on me, the conspiracies and all that. Those hurt. Those, I think about those things. But there's nothing you can do about that. What we could have done 
is played basketball as a team and the way we had been playing all year, especially against the Lakers, and handled business in, at home in front of our fans. I'm with you in your sports room, and you have beautiful frame jerseys of everywhere you've played, starting with your 31 at Kansas. Pistons, Kings, Heat. No Heat. I mean, uh, Pacers, rather, Cavaliers, and Celtics. And you have the uh, Celtics championship banner hanging here. But I don't see any pictures from Survivor. So (laughs) tell me, tell everyone, what on earth made you want to be on Survivor? And what was that experience like? Uh, The first time Survivor reached out was in 2010. And it wasn't a convenient time for me personally to be able to leave the country. So I, I said, no, thank you. But, you know, I'm not doing it. And that ended up being the season that Cliff Robinson was on. Uh, and who just R- passed away? R.I.P. to Cliff Robinson. Yeah. What a great man! I and, love Cliff. Uh, Loved the man. He had, and I, I, I had been in touch with his people, so I knew he had some health problems. I knew it was creeping up, and a lot of people just were like shocked. They're like, "What happened?" And and so I'm not going to divulge the details because it's not from my story to tell. But I had known it was coming, and it was just awful. But um, it, they reached out again in 2014, in December of 2014, and and I'm married to the lovely Mrs. Don Pollard, and she's like, "Can I go too?" I mean, she's like, go, that'll be fun. And I was like, I, it's not really my thing. I don't, I've never watched the show, really. I know, it's a, I know it exists, and I've, I've probably had seen it, uh, you know, on a, on a random night, maybe watched a few minutes, but I wasn't a fan and didn't really know how the game was played or why. And uh, at that point, I was also in some small movies. Uh, I had produced my own movie, and I was just thinking, you know what, maybe this is another thing that can get me into a bigger role in Hollywood and get, get my foot in the door out there without having to move to LA and be the starving actor kind of thing. Cause that's kind of how you have to do it. If you're a character actor, which is my limitation because of my size, I'm never going to be mainstream. I've since given up on those dreams, but at the time, that's what I was thinking. Why would I go on survivor? That's why. And you know, I went into casting and, and they do, I mean, it's, I, I could go for an hour about how casting was and, and all of the stories that go along there, but um, I'll never be invited back to survivor. Um, because I had a good time. I had a fun time. Did you? I, I thought it was a blast. I was, I made it 28 days out of 39. I wow. lost 46 pounds in 28 days. So the surviving part is real, just so you're aware. So there are there <laughs> days when you were on, you were in Cambodia, correct? Yes. Okay. Were there days where you're like, man, I want to get the hell out of here? No. Because you're there to win. Yeah. Okay. And I, with win would have come a lot of notoriety in addition to money, yeah. but it probably would have changed your life. I, I would assume, but so when you're going through the rigors and the way it's portrayed on TV, it doesn't look like you're having, you know, a vacation. It doesn't look <laughs> like a picnic. Okay. But again, yeah. it, I'm sure it's somewhat different behind the scenes, but you never wanted to like, you're there to win, but there aren't days where you're like, man, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Nope, not at all. And that's why I'll never be invited back. That's where I was going with it because I had a good time. Jason was the other guy on my season. We, we hit it off. We're the only ones married with kids. Uh, we're the only ones that were playing for our families. Uh, and, He's former army and he's got some stories that again, I'm not going to tell those, but he's got some stories. He's seen some things and he's done some things. And both of us are out there laughing and giggling like, well, let's, I mean, we knew we were going to be the villains anyway. So we're just like, let's play it up. Like, let's just do dumb stuff. And and we had a blast. That's why I, I know I'll never be invited back because it doesn't fit the story arc. They don't want the story arc of two guys just hanging out and laughing at other people when they're crying because it's raining outside. We're like, it's 
so what? It's raining. We're still in Cambodia. It's not like it's 12 degrees. Right. <laughs> we're not getting frostbite. Um, we're, we're just, you know, it's chilly. And so I'm like, go in the ocean. It's warmer in the ocean. If the air temperature, because the rain's killing you, go in the ocean. They're like, well, I can't swim. I'm like, it's not like 10 foot waves. Let's just go wander out and sit down. But anyway, people react to different things differently. And Jason and I had a fun time. And that's not the story arc they're looking for. They want the people that are out there like, I'm going to do this. And then they break them down to tears and then they have a heroic comeback and they win the season. That's the story arc they're looking for. They do that year in and year out, season in, season out. Um, and I didn't buckle into that. I was, I'd go to testimonials and they're like, well, this is happening, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't care what you say behind the camera. I'm not going to give you what you want to hear. And so there wasn't a whole lot of testimonials for me uh, on camera because there were times where I just said, oh, you know what? I need a break. To your point. I would say I need a break because you're constantly scheming and it's stressful when you're tired and hungry and thirsty and all that. And so there were times where I'd go to the testimonials and I say, you know what, carry me back to camp if you want, but I'm not saying anything, but I just don't want to be around those people for a few minutes. I'm going to take a break and I'm not going to tell you anything you want to hear. And they're like, Scott, you need to go back to camp. And I'm like, carry me. I'm taking a break and there's nothing you can do about it because I know nobody here can pick me up and carry me back to camp, but that's what's going to happen. I'm going to sit here and say nothing and do nothing until I'm ready to go back to camp. I just need 15 minutes. I'm going to take a little snooze. If you could go back and do it all over again, would you still have gone to be a contestant on Survivor? Well, I'm never going to do it again, but yeah. No, but I mean, I mean to, 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 you don't regret doing it is what I mean. No, because the, the separation from my wife and kids was the hardest part. And at the time, my sister was going through health problems. I wasn't sure oh, she boy. was going to make it. And she's made it. She's fine now. But she was going through some very serious health problems, cancer and a heart problem. And she's fine now. But uh, I was not yeah. sure if she was going to make it while I was gone. Wow. And my mom's always got health issues. She's still with and us. And they, they block you out from what's going on in the world, you correct? You cannot even look at the producer's watch and know what time it is. So you would have, I mean, for me, and being a sports junkie, I wouldn't know what's going No, I couldn't even ask someone, hey, did this team win? Did that team win? Was, we were filming during the Final Four, and I wow. didn't know who won. That's unbelievable yeah. for you. Yeah, because that's really all I care about is yeah. college basketball, the Kansas Jayhawks. So, um, yeah, you don't know anything about going on. And, and then I get back. I find out my family is okay. I get my phone back in L.A., and I called Mrs. Pollard, and I said, Mrs. Pollard, I had a dream while we were gone. while I was gone. We're having a baby. And she started crying. She told me the same story. Wow. And she had a dream. It was different from my dream, but she had a dream. That That's good, by the way. That we were having a baby. <laughs> yeah. And so wow. we did. And so we have our little survivor baby. So, no, I would never change it. That's I would so absolutely great. go back and do it again. I just won't go back and do it again. But the same decision back then was the right decision because number four, little Iceman, uh, he's He's a terrorist, but I love that kid. That little Iceman, <laughs> hard to believe he's five now, right? Four and a half. Or four and a half. Yeah. My kids are grown, and I worry about the world that they're entering as they get into adulthood. You have a young son, mm -hmm. another son who's 13 and two daughters. Yep. Do you worry about the world that Ison's getting ready to embark Absolutely. on? Absolutely. I, I really honestly believe social media is destroying us because I agree. it's giving the wrong people a voice. I agree. I don't, I don't think everyone should have a voice. I'm sorry if that sounds uh, totalitarian to anyone, but... There are certain people that are just, they, they like, and I wouldn't even say they're evil. I just think there are certain people that like to get their brain droppings out on social media. And it doesn't even represent their actual character in real life. But there are too many fake accounts that people use to spread negativity and to spread fear and to spread anger. It's awful. And 
that's a constant barrage that is going on. Even as an adult, it goes on. When you see it, you see it. You can't unsee it. So you log into whatever uh, platform you use, and you're seeing, you know, this and that, and blah, 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 and he did it, and she did this, and blah, blah, blah. And that's a constant barrage of information that is overwhelming for any human at any age. So um, I, I counsel my kids to stay off of social media as Smart. much as possible. We try to limit their screen time, and it's very difficult. But I absolutely worry about this programming that's happening because of that effect, that cultural effect, that psychological effect that social media is having on all of us. You and I are on the same page, but in my opening podcast, I read a tweet from Kevin Euclid, former Major League Baseball player. Oh, yeah, I follow him on Twitter. Okay. Yep. August 26th. Of 2020? Yes. Thank you. He tweeted, the mental health and well-being of our country is deteriorating, and social media is the culprit. The constant hatred towards others that don't share the same opinions is tiresome and unhealthy for our society. We all need to be better so the next generation is healthier and happier. Absolutely. And, that, and people go, why don't you talk about politics on social media? I'm like, that's exactly why. That's correct. Because I agree with every single word you just said. Um, he, he hit it on the head, and that's exactly how I feel. Uh, so, you know, I do goofy little videos once in a while. Uh, I, I just, you know, it's my brain droppings too, but it's only my positive brain droppings. It's not everything I feel. It's not everything I think. I'm not dumping my dirty laundry on Facebook. I am, I, I spread positivity. I talk about the charity events that we're involved in or that we get invited to, to be a part of. And I talk about successes and I, I spread quotes that helped me in my days uh, of, of becoming successful. And I'm becoming successful again in a new career in real estate now. And, you know, th- there are so many ways to affect the world positivity, positively, and and it, it's just becoming sort of a, a like you said, it's just it's. Why would you get on there just to spread negativity? Why would you get on there to spread hate? And There's I don't that, understand that. I don't either. I've been all around the world. I know you have too. We've been around the world together. Yes. And I don't know if I've ever met an actual racist. I don't know that I've ever met people that truly wish bad on other people. I see people get upset. Sure. And I've seen fights, of sure. course. I'm not some pie in the sky like, everything's uh, going to be okay. Well but said. I've been around the world, and every culture I've been around, people just love people. Yes. We are, we are interconnected in that the, our species enjoys familial structure. We need tribes. People don't do well alone. That's why there's a, radio, a, a reality TV show about it, because it messes with you being alone. We are tribal species. So... Everywhere I go all around the world, people are in general very nice and happy and want other people to be nice and happy. And then I log into social media and I sometimes see all this stuff. I'm like, where are these people? Because I've been all over and I don't see this. So it has to be that I'm people are putting their negative thoughts and their negative emotions only out there. And that is destroying our human brain. It's not good for us to see that. It's not good because that's got to be a very small percentage of people because, again, in my experience, I don't see those I don't see it either. If you wore your Kansas jersey or any of the other jerseys that we have on the wall and you were walking down the street in any city in America or forget about America, let's go around abroad, whatever, 
You could stop and have a conversation with that person, give high fives, talk about the team. You wouldn't know whether they're Democrat, Republican. You wouldn't know their upbringing. You wouldn't know whether they are uh, charitable folks. You wouldn't know anything about them. But you could sit there and for 10 minutes you could reminisce and talk about the team mm-hmm. and then go, hey, man, see you. Good luck. Go, go Jayhawks yeah. and walk down the street. That's how when I travel without having the jerseys on, those are the experiences that I have almost 100% of the time with complete strangers. So if you can do that with, why are we having such a difficult time in this country? And I totally agree with you. Social media is at the top of the list. And I also believe not to go off on a tangent here, the media in general, the news media, you don't know what to believe and what not to believe because every single channel that you turn on, and I'm, and I don't think I'm going overboard by saying every has their own agenda. Yeah. If you're watching CNN, you know what you're getting. If you're watching Fox News, you know what you're getting. If you're watching MSNBC, the point is, but are you hearing the truth? Mm-hmm. I don't I, I, I don't think we are. Well, we're, I don't think we are either. And I don't want to go off on a big tangent on that either because I could go on for a while. Uh, but what I do is when I see a story on this or that, I go, I go to the worldwide interwebs and I do some research and I find data to back up either that that story is true because there's a police report confirming it, or there's a graph about a study that's been done on this subject, and it proves data. Math doesn't lie. Math is fair. It's, It's absolutely real. So when there's data to back it up, then you can make your own decision. The unfortunate side of our social media is you got 126 characters or 256 characters or whatever, and meaning gets lost, and no one cares to do their research. People just see a headline, and the media knows that, and that is why they come up with the sensational headlines, because it gives them clicks, and clicks means money. So the more sensational the headline, whether it's true or not, is the reason why those headlines exist, and it's feeding into this beast of, I want to be first to break the news, even if it's inaccurate and people believe it. That's the problem is there's the, the it's our responsibility as Correct. parents to teach our kids critical thinking and to find relationships with people that yes, your best relationships, you're going to have the most in common with those people, but you can also have relationships like family members that may do- believe different things than you politics, religion, whatever. My whole family's Mormon. I'm not Mormon. Guess what? I still love my family. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I got gotcha. you. Like, like I have friends that completely disagree with everything I think about politics. Sure. And we're very, very good friends because we're adults. We have discourse. We have disagreements, but we don't hate each other or block each other out because that's ignorant. And as to your point, exactly, Grant, you go around the world and I'll do you one better. I don't have to be wearing a jersey to even talk about sports. I can sit down with a stranger, and I did it in Rome. Nobody knew I was on the Celtics when I was with them in Rome. And I'm sitting down in Rome, Italy, can't speak a word, and I shared a bottle of wine with some dude that just was like, oh, excuse me, I'm not going to drink all this. And I was like, great. And we hardly spoke. And just kind of like the the waiter would come over and kind of translate once in a while, like, oh, he's from here, oh, he's from there. He didn't know I was a Boston Celtic. And we sat there for an hour. And just had a great conversation. I know nothing about the guy. Didn't even know his name. And that is my experience in the world. I am my will, experience too. I know. Because we've done it. We've yes. been in other countries yes. together. And I, I refuse to believe that there is actually people out there that are really depending on you to pick a side for their benefit. It's just, it's so weird. Well, we me. are living in a society of cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I'm living proof of that, but I'm not here to really, you know, have you cry or have me cry on your shoulder, but I want to turn it around on you because I've known you for over 20 years and I've seen the way you interact with strangers. I've seen the charitable work that you really, I think your life is, is full of, that is a need in your life to help out others. And you've had some instances throughout your career because you're very off the cuff, you're very uh, flippant that have gone against you like it did against me, which I wasn't being flippant. But the point I'm trying to make is no one wants to spend five minutes, as you talk about, and educate yourself and peel back the layers of the individual that you're criticizing. Mm -hmm. I don't know of any human being, or at least in my 61 years on earth, that has not made a mistake. I don't know any perfect people. No, there isn't one. Okay. (laughs) And yet, yet... you can make one mistake with the intent of not trying to harm, malice, or anything, and it can be completely a huge explosion, and your life is never the same. And I'm not saying that happened to you, but you had a couple of instances where you would, would do something, and it would be completely like, wow, huge news, and people would have a different perception of you based on that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'll use the, the Cleveland, hey, kids do drugs comment. Mm-hmm. I made a joke at the camera for the guys in the truck. I'm sitting at the end of the bench, camera pans over at the end of a timeout. And this was a common thing for me dating back to college. And this is my 10th year in the NBA. The, the cameraman knew I was going to tell some jokes, especially if one of the guys in the truck producing it went to Missouri or went to Kansas or went to a rival school, another rival school, you know, hey, say something to the guy in the truck. And so a lot of times I'd know that it's just for the guys in the truck. So there might even been curse words in some of those things because I knew it was just for the guys in the truck. And I knew that in my future, I was probably going to be involved with the media. So I was building relationships, right? And I'm a joker. I I tell jokes. So uh, in Cleveland, I'm sitting there and guy goes, "Ah," and I go, hey, kids, do drugs. You know, it was live. And it was on TV, and it hit it. And the Cleveland Cavaliers had to backtrack, and they wanted me to apologize, and I never apologized. I said it was a joke. It's unfortunate that people took it seriously, but obviously it was a joke. It was for the guys in the truck. I didn't realize the camera was on. It's my mistake, but I don't, I'm not going to apologize. And I never did apologize, and they said they fined me. They didn't. Uh, but they had to cover their butts because people were going after them. Now, fast forward to, you know, I'm with the Pacers 10 years later as a media member. Retired, but I'm a member of the media. And I said something then that I think was far more controversial, but... It got swept over. And the only reason, I think, is because social media. Because back when I said, hey, kids, do drugs, social media wasn't what it is today. Today, there's so many more things for everyone to try to get offended by every single day in social media that when you Google me, that's the first thing that comes up. It's not what I said 10 years later in 2016, I think, um, on, on air as a media member, which I think was worse. And I ended up not being a Pacers broadcaster after that season. Now that was many months later. And I don't think that's why I wasn't. I think it was just, it doesn't, didn't fit. We didn't fit well. Uh, but when you Google me, the head kids drew, drew drugs comes up and, and people that hate the haters on the interwebs, they bring that up. And I think the only reason that exists and is that big of a deal is because it was before the cancel culture. It was before. And so that stands out so much. And I've said so many worse things. And I've said so many worse jokes and so many off-color things that have been jokes. And none of those show up in the Googles 
before that, before the, hey, kids do drugs. And I, it, the only answer I can come up with is because social media now versus social media then and its infancy yep. to now where it's just like, no, that's not big enough. That, we got a bigger story to cancel this person because they said this. And uh, this guy's a racist because I disagree with what he said. Like, the, you know, that cancel culture mentality that's going on right now. And, and again, I will, I will repeat this until I'm blue in the face. I still think that's a tiny, tiny fraction of our world. I don't think there's enough of those people that are that really actually feel that way. That I it's going to sway anything in the real world. The real world is full of wonderful human beings that want to help each right. other out. You know how I feel about what's going on in sports right now with the social justice initiatives and everything. I, I've said it for years and years. I said it before Colin Kaepernick took a knee. I said that when you bring politics into sports, you bring these issues into sports, you're going to turn off a lot of fans. I've been saying that for years. And we're, we're seeing that. I think that sports should be counting their lucky stars that fans are not allowed into the venues because I honestly believe that there would be quite a reduction. I may be wrong. We'll find out eventually. The point I'm trying to make with all of this is why do you think it is so hard for our country, and I'm going to try to keep it to sports, because in the locker room, there were no barriers, mm-hmm. right? You you were in tons of locker rooms. You may not like everyone, but there was the, the camaraderie, the, the life, the... Why can't we take that culture with different ethnicities? You played on a team with people from Europe, you know, African-American, you you know, uh, whether, African. right, right. <laughs> I mean, all over no, the world. I, I, I understand. Yeah. Why can't we take that environment with how people get along in the locker room and, and put it out in society? Why, why, why is there such a difference between what you experience with people from all over the world, with different ethnicities, different economic backgrounds? Some people came from great families. Some people came from very poor families, some, you know, whatever. What, why are we having such a hard time? <sighs> Again, I, I, in the real world, I don't think we are. I think in social media, we are having a problem because then it goes back to the word you used earlier, agenda. The, the, the difference between some people's mentality in the real world and their mentality on social media is agenda. I want to be proven right. I want to be right. I don't care if I'm incorrect or if I'm looked at as disagreeable. I just want to be right. That's the need, I think, on social media. People want to be, that's why the hot takes come out. People are just saying, oh, blah, 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 blah. They want to be the first one to say it and then save their tweet and then come back and see, I said this a month ago and now it's happening. So I was right. That thirst for people to be correct, to be right, to be proven right, even if their motive was wrong, is an agenda. That is what people's agenda is. If they're not in actual news, why would you talk about news? Why are you spreading someone else's news story when you're just a layperson? You're not involved in the news media. Why are you sharing other people's news clips? Why are you advertising CNN's story about this or that or Fox News' story about this or that when you're just a person? You're just like you're a plumber. You're a basketball player. Why are you sharing this story? You're not in the news media. Why are you doing that? What are you trying to prove to people? This is how I vote, so you should get along with me because we're forming a team here, and you need to get on my team because we're right, and you're wrong because you believe different things than me. That need to be proven right is the problem on social media. 
Well, I just want to conclude by saying when you played at Kansas and you started your career in Detroit and I think a cup of coffee in Atlanta and then to Sacramento, I'm glad that uh, camera phones did not exist. I'm glad social media (laughs) did not exist. You know what I mean? Because, like, you know what? When I travel around the league in the last few years, players now really just stay – in their rooms, we there are players that get on the the plane with their Xbox, yep. and they because they can't go outside because everything is being broadcast. Because you know, we you and I had this yeah. discussion last night. There are cameras everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And even if you're not doing anything wrong, there are so many people now that are looking to get rich off of trying to get you to do something stupid. Yep. So guys. They don't even go out anymore for the most part. I read an excellent article about that, and I'm sorry I can't remember the author's name because I'd like to give them credit, but uh, it was the title was uh, The Tinderization of the NBA, and it speaks to that exactly. It speaks to the players not being able to go out and have a meal because there might be an alcoholic beverage on the table, and it's like, oh, he getting, got wasted before the game last night. That's why he's not going to play well tonight. I'm going to put my money on this, you know. And and the the women and and them trying to set men up. And I've been teammates with a lot of guys that got set up. I mean, talking about holes in condoms and you know trying to get pregnant or or trying to just give them a, a venereal disease or whatever, or just even just disparage them. They're married, and I hung out with them. You know, I've been around all kinds of that. And I don't blame the players now. I don't know how to play video games, but I'd probably, if I played in this NBA, I'd probably learn because even at the end of my career, before all the cameras were everywhere, I, yeah, we joke with our friends all the time, man, college was great when nobody was watching. I don't know how it'd be to go to college right now where there's cameras everywhere. And it's, it's not because we were doing evil things. We were doing childish things, normal juvenile things. You know, you, you stay up too late. I don't need to see on Twitter the next day that I was up past midnight and happened to be in a bar, even if I wasn't drinking in college. Now I didn't do that. I didn't drink in college until my senior year and turned 21. But, um, it doesn't mean I wasn't in bars. I was in bars. But, you know, nowadays, I don't know how college kids do it and, and try to keep their reputation clean. And also, why are you taking selfies everywhere you go and posting that? Like, hey, I'm here. Now the world knows it. And that world's always going to know it. And somebody that's going to try to hire you one day is going to know what you did because you're posting all of your personal information on the, t- on the, on the interweb. So I know I'm going off on tangents here, but, you know, uh, I appreciate that I grew up when I grew up. And I appreciate the discipline the players have nowadays. Uh, they, you know, we're always getting smarter. We're always getting better technology. We're always getting better medical care. And the players today, uh, I think, you know, <laughs> honestly, I think they're softer than in my day. But it's a different kind of soft because they have better medical care, because they're getting better advice. I was like telling the doctors, hey, I'm ready. I'm going. And they'd be like, well, we can't stop you. Nowadays, they're like, no, you're sitting out until you are 100% and we give you a clean bill of health. They're not, they, they, they wouldn't do well with all, us, us old guys that are like, yeah, my ankle's swollen up, but I'm playing tonight because it's the big game. You know, that's what I'm going to do. And that's probably why my career was only 11 years and not 20 like some other guys, uh, because I beat myself up. I beat my body up and I played more injured games when I should have been playing only when, it, when I was hurt. But I was playing when I was injured. And that's a big difference. And I shouldn't have done that uh, as much as I did. But... Uh, God bless the players today uh, for the ability to have that restraint, stay indoors, take care of themselves, eat right, live right. I see a whole lot of positive kids, uh, players, not kids, uh, in the NBA. You know, I'm not a religious guy, but when they're talking about they praise God and they're, they're, they're you know, living correctly, and you see it because they're so full of health and energy on the court. 
when they're when you see guys that are getting out of the league in a short amount of time, they're not living right. You know, either they weren't talented enough in the first place or they're not living right because they're not in shape and they can't keep up. You get hurt when you're out of shape. And so uh, I just love the discipline that you, that you see in a lot of the players, not all of them, because <laughs> there's always going to be the boneheads that don't take care of themselves. But uh, I, I personally, I don't know how they do it. I, I, I don't know how kids go to college nowadays. I don't know how you get away in the NBA because I was a guy that liked to hang out, not late. Nothing good happens after midnight. But I, I always went out. I always went out and, and hung out with people and, and met new people and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and that was part of my favorite memories of college and, and the NBA. And uh, there's just... It's different. You are now going to do something that I've never done before. It's time for Grant, Grant, Grant. Because it's time for Grant's rant, and I've never had anyone help me, but you are going to help me today. <laughs> it right. is now time for Grant's rant. Now, you've heard me in the past talk about metered ramps and how I think they are the stupidest invention in the freaking world. I've never understood why when you are trying to merge onto a highway where people are going 65 and 70 miles an hour, you have to come to a complete stop and wait for the freaking light to turn green. It is the stupidest, most ridiculous. I've had arguments with traffic engineers. I don't want to hear from it. It is ridiculous. I refuse to stop at these damn metered ramps. However, I go to Carmel, Indiana, and they have a great invention, okay? It's called roundabouts instead of four-way stop signs. The traffic is not backed up everywhere, but I don't see that in other neighborhoods around the country. I got to come halfway across the country to Carmel, Indiana to have roundabouts where the traffic is not backed up for freaking, you know, a quarter of a block. Now, am I right or wrong there? I will join in with that because on the same token that the people are talking about emissions and, and problems with exhaust, what do you do when you stop at a metered ramp to get to 65? You floor it. Guess what? That's a whole lot more emissions than if you just coast into it and accelerate at a normal pace. Amen. So you floor it from the meter traffic, and you're adding more pollution Amen. to a state that already has problems with pollution. Back to Indiana, these roundabouts, I've been here for 17 years now. They were all four-way stops or stoplights. People get drunk. People run over stop signs. Then there's no direction. People think there's no stop sign, and that causes accidents. Stoplights go out because of a thunderstorm, and all of a sudden it takes a 12 hours or whatever, so people get in accidents because the stoplight doesn't work. Roundabouts keep the traffic flowing. Even if somebody, and I've seen it, people flipping them over, uh, like jumping over them like Dukes of Hazard <laughs> style because they're drunk or they're tired or whatever, and they don't see it. Well, that's not or funny, they're texting, right? which is, Sure. I shouldn't know. laugh about that, but well, go ahead. I, yeah. I, I, right. You know what I mean. They're going Dukes of Hazard sure. style over it, and you see the tracks, and the, you see them jump over it the roundabout still works even when somebody crashes in the middle of it or or goes over it or or you know hey, breaks it's better the than curb. broadsiding a car yeah i mean it, and and it does take some getting used to for and you, you can tell when people don't live around here because they they tend to have a little problems and sometimes they try to go around from the outside lane and and it's hard to explain it without uh video but um I think they're the greatest thing, and I, I, I joke with my friends all the time. I don't like leaving my roundabouts because you do. You leave your roundabouts, and you go down to Indianapolis, all of a sudden it's pothole well, city. And the, uh, we're, I'm very lucky to live in an area that is it's, – it's a wealthy area, but the, the mayor has made an investment in this community that's going to last for many, many years. They're building five more roundabouts this year, and we already lead the world in roundabouts for capita. We how the, about that? You lead the, the world in roundabouts. Woo! The home, be first at you know, I call Indianapolis is the home of Eli Manning, as I was there with my two boys to watch him beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl at Lucas Oil. You know that anything is possible in the world when a city like Indianapolis can host the Super Bowl. And the city of Indianapolis, as you know, it's come a long way. Now, my rant's going a little over, but I just want to say one thing. All right. That's my rant for today. 
and thank you for helping me out. Thank you for uh, doing this, man. It's great catching up with you. Hey, it's it's always great to see you, and thanks for uh, thanks for stopping in, and thanks for having me on the show, man. I hope everyone out there has a fabulous day. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.